started a new study in the book of 2 Corinthians, as is our habit in this church. For the most part, we just walk through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But we also tend to break those studies into smaller mini-series because um, the Bible is organized because it is literature. And so as we look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1, they all focus on the reality of suffering. And so we've called this series, In the Midst, Finding Meaning Amongst Suffering. If you've got a Bible this morning, you'll want to open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one very nearby in the back of the pew. It's the black one. Um, You can use the index in the front to find the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians and open up to chapter 1. Before we read the passage this morning, I wanted to inform or remind you that the Bible uh, was written in a time where reading as an ability wasn't terribly common. And so Christianity in its early days was a religion of the people of the book, but their encounter with the book was almost always in a public setting and was almost always auditory. Meaning that when Paul wrote this letter, He wrote it knowing that it would be read aloud. In fact, just as an insight, there is an occasion in uh, Paul's letters to Timothy where he's encouraging him in his role as pastor. And he says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to to, uh, the communication of doctrine. The word there for reading is literally public reading. Now, your translation may not say that, but that's all the word means. It means, till I come, give attention to the reading aloud. What I'm saying is that the Bible was meant to be read aloud. In fact, the rabbis had a saying. If you want to forget what you read, read it to yourself. And so even in the Old Testament days, um, this was the emphasis. The reason why that's vital to us this morning is you may have read this passage before and missed the profound impact it has when read aloud. You see, when we put things into sound, when it enters in not just through our eyes but through our ears, we're much more likely to notice repetition. And so as I read aloud this morning, I want you to feel the weight of the repetition of this passage, maybe in a way that you haven't, because Paul clearly has an agenda in these opening verses, and I want you to hear it. Let's read together. I'll just read aloud, and you can, you can read along in your Bibles. Um, first Corinth, or second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which our, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's pray.
Father, as we look at your word this morning, we deal with a topic that we cannot uh, approach hypothetically. We, we have to look into the eye something that is so profound in its experience uh, that it's hard to handle, handle just rationally or reasonably. It's hard not to take personally, Lord, because suffering hurts, because suffering is inherently personal, because suffering is the thing that challenges meaning in our life. And so I pray as we look at your word this morning that you would prove true the reality that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I pray that you would um, shape our understanding of suffering, whether present, past, or future, through the things in this word, because this word proclaims who you are and what you've done and what's made available to us in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us through your spirit to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I imagine you heard the repetition. In four, excuse me, five short verses, ten times Paul uses the same word, the word comfort, or um, comforted, or comforting. It's clearly his emphasis in this passage, but it's intriguing to notice that it's not just left on the table as a solution to our suffering, it's actually given as a purpose for our suffering. You see, what we're trying to answer as we look at this series is how do we make and understand and maintain meaning in the midst of suffering? Because suffering produces questions and concerns and challenges, uh, not just our worldview, uh, but our faith in such a profound way. Um, And yet here... Yet here, throughout all of these 11 verses, what we looked at last week in verses 1 and 2, today's verses, and then next week's as well, um, we're given clues to meaning. We're given breadcrumbs to follow in the dark forest of our suffering. And I want you to listen closely to what he says again here in verse 4. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that, do you see those two words? That's a telic cue. Telios is the Greek word for purpose or intention. It's a purpose language. Why does God comfort us in our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Do you see what he's implying there? He's implying that there's a touch point in the midst of our suffering and what God is doing and what God wants to do in other people's lives. Now, I want to remind you this morning that Paul is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to what he labels in verse 1, the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia. That lens is important because what Paul is saying here applies directly and specifically to Christians. If you're outside of the church, if you haven't received Jesus Christ this morning, this gives you a window in, but it's not applicable until you step through the doors. In a similar way, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about the consequence of the fact that we've been justified. 
Although our catechism didn't use that word this morning, that's a summary word for much of what we read. Justification means that God freely forgives us in Jesus Christ. It means that he sees us as righteous in Jesus Christ. It's a legal term. In fact, in the, um, in the days of the Puritan, imagine that you were accused of public drunkenness. You went to court. You were um, found guilty and thrown in the stocks. Once you served that punishment, they would rubber stamp the document of your uh, court record with the word justified. Okay? Justified means the punishment has been paid in full. Okay? So what is Paul saying in Romans chapter 5? He says, therefore, since you have been justified, and he starts to list the results, the consequences of that reality. Because this, your sin, no longer stands between you and God, what does life with God look like? And he lists a couple of things. But one of them, he says, not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces. And he starts to, list, to make a list of the things that suffering does. What he says there is for the Christian, suffering is now always a productive thing, okay? Because we have been justified. But do you see the relationship between those two things? He's not just laying out a principle that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He's saying because you have been forgiven, wherever suffering enters into your life, you can know that God has intention in it because it's clearly not punishment. How do you know that? Because Jesus took your punishment fully, because you're justified. And so this is something that God allows in your life for your good. Okay? And so Christian, I'm speaking to you directly this morning. It says here that when God allows you to go through suffering and then comforts you in the midst of it, there's an intentionality in that, there's a purpose in that, and it's not just about you. Now, I find this incredibly intriguing because nothing makes us more self-focused than suffering. And I'm, that's not a complaint or a criticism. It's just a reality. When we experience pain, our world shrinks to the hyper-focus of ourselves, to self-preservation. When that pain is continuous and something we endure, the world we live in is a world that is smaller. And so it's fascinating here that he pokes you know, a hole in the darkness of our suffering and says, don't forget, God has a plan for you in the midst of other people's lives. Now, I want you to notice that he says something more than the obvious this morning. Because let's just be honest, you're a better person with those who suffer if you have also suffered. Right? Suffering naturally equips you to be better and more capable in the handling of those who are currently suffering. It makes you sympathetic, right? It gives you empathy. You have understanding. You're not as likely to say, suck it up, it's not a big deal, because you know better, right? The majority of pain is, even, even when it's not physical pain, the majority of the way we experience pain is so invisible and internal, it's incredibly hard to measure on the outside. How do your doctors do it? On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad does it hurt? How's that for science, right? It's incredibly subjective. It's incredibly relevant or uh, uh, relative, right? It can't be measured on a chart or a graph, just an opinion. But that also means it locks us outside of other people's suffering, so we truly can't know what it feels like. But if we have been high on that roster ourselves, if we felt what we call a 10, 
then we know what it means for someone else. But Paul says something more than that. He says here that God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able not just to sympathize, but to comfort those who are currently suffering. And as he walks through this passage, basically what he does is he gives us view of two sides of that reality. In other words, we can read this as those who currently are suffering, and we can read this as those who have in the past tense been comforted. Okay? And to be clear, we probably can't just organize into two camps this morning. Right? If you've been a Christian for very long, you probably have experienced some amount of suffering, and you've probably experienced some amount of comfort. If you're suffering this morning, it doesn't mean that you weren't comforted in the past, right? It's not that these are two different types of people. These are two types of experiences of all people, okay? But we get two windows into that this morning, and that's what I want to look at. But before he gets into it, I want you to notice where he begins, Paul is not just giving us principles or platitudes. It's personal because it's rooted in the character of God. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts. Do you see where he begins here? He begins by telling us about who God is. This passage is tremendously theological. It's rooted in the character of God. And so what he gives here are not rules of the universe that, uh, that the laws of the universe are such that if you're suffering, keep this in mind, right? This is not um, a platitude that says basically that, uh, that suffering always serves a purpose because the scales of the universe tilt and it has to tilt back the other way. It's not some understanding of the world that says uh, that uh, you can reduce life down to karma, and so the laws are going to play itself out in the end. No, he says, he says that comfort for the Christian is not rooted in our suffering or in the world in which it is conveyed, but in the reality of who God is. To the degree that how does he open this? He says at the open, blessed be the God. Okay? Some of your translations might interpret that praise be to God, and that's completely accurate. That's what he's doing here. He's worshiping God for who he is because that is what leads to comfort. And so he says a couple of things about the identity of God here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he calls him here the Father of mercies. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that this book was written in Greek to a Greek-speaking culture from a Greek-speaking person. And so we have to watch out for metaphorical language, idioms, and figurative language because it doesn't always translate directly into our world. Okay? So maybe you've read, for example, many times in the New Testament where it refers to sons, the son of perdition, the son of righteousness, uh, the son of the devil, Okay. In that world, in the first century, the association between a concept like righteousness and a son is that you have um, uh, your father's likeness, right? It's that you resemble your parents. And so when they say a son of, the idea there is resemblance. 
But when he says father of mercies here, you can't just reverse that and say, okay, he's the father of mercies because he personifies mercy. No, it means something else. This metaphor is pointing to the fact that God is the source of mercy. He's the father of mercy. He's the parent of it. It begins with him. It stems from him. It comes from him. Okay? And so in other words, if you look at all of the refreshing waters of comfort in life, the head, the fountainhead, the beginning of it all is God. That's who he is. It's built into his identity. If you've experienced mercy in your life, a relief in the midst of pain, a let-up of the suffering, the origin of that is God. He is the Father of mercies. And then notice here it also calls him the God of all comfort. Now this phrase is somewhat similar, is it not? We would assume that it means just about the same thing, but the emphasis is a little bit different. When it refers to God here as the God of all comfort, it doesn't just mean that all comfort comes from God. It doesn't just say that God is the source of comfort wherever you find it in your life. It, it speaks of abundance. Okay? The God of all comfort is in more comfort than you could need, as in all of it belongs to him. Uh, it's a phrase for abundance. And so just think about these two terms together, that both the origin of mercy is God and that he is sufficient. He has abundant comforting available. Now, the metaphors that I'm using there are inherently impersonal. We're talking like God as if he were a bank, right? A resource that you can draw on, an account that you can tap into that will ease the burden, but but that's a limited understanding. The reason he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort is because of who God is. Like we sang this morning, he is loving kindness. He is long-suffering, right? This, is, this stems from the fact that God loves. It stems from the fact that God cares. In fact, the word here, father, is used multiple times. He's not merely the father of mercies, but also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, jump back to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so it's God our Father, God the Father of Jesus Christ, and God the Father of mercies. Why does he keep hitting that nail on the head? It's because that word implies relationship. Okay, Loving relationship, caring relationship, providing relationship. And so if we're going to understand what comes next, if you're in the midst of suffering right now and you are resistant to simple answers, you have to remind yourself of who God is. Let's look at the last phrase we didn't touch on. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he grounds this reality. You see, the other statements are somewhat intangible. To some degree, we have to take them on two legs. One is faith, and the other is experience. This is who God says he is in his word. I have either experienced that or I have not. But when he says the father of Jesus Christ, that gives us a historical touch point. It gives us a validation. It gives us evidence to who God is. We mentioned this last week, but it's important for us to recognize that one of the ways that Christianity is unique in what it teaches 
is that it does not just convey a solution to our suffering. You see, suffering is so broad in human experience, every philosophy has to look it in the eye and come up with a solution. Every religion has to answer the question of why do we suffer? What do we do when we suffer? What does our suffering mean? That's just part of the world we live in. But Christianity doesn't just present a God who cares about suffering and ended our suffering. It presents a God who entered into our suffering, a God who suffers. See, the Bible proclaims that God became man in Jesus Christ, that he willingly took on flesh, and with that flesh took all of the hardships that we experience in human life. That God knows experientially what it's like to be hungry, to be tired, and not just in, in the basic realities of life, but in the deeper realities of suffering, he knows what it's like to be rejected, abandoned, mistreated, wrongfully judged. He knows what it's like to experience even the separation of sin, not because he himself deserved it, but because he bore our sin on his shoulders. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels the greatest suffering of the human condition, the one that's so constant in our life we're not always aware of it, which is separation from the God who made us. Hebrews puts it this way, that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And so when it refers to this God, the one who knows you're suffering right now, the one who you cry out to or resent, as the father of Jesus Christ, there's a historical touch point for who that God is. The God with scars on his hands. The God who willingly, on your behalf, to offer you salvation, took suffering upon himself. So, the second question I think that's helpful to ask as we get into this text is what kind of suffering? Because I want you to recognize that even though all suffering has suffering in common, it's painful, it's hard, it's difficult, the cause of suffering differs. And so some suffering we bring upon ourselves. right? We live in a world of consequences. Some of the pain we experience is due to our foolishness or our rebellion. A good deal of pain and suffering in life is due to the sin of others, right? That we just are so close, it spills over into our lives. It's unavoidable. We're mistreated, and that's not our fault, but it is suffering. Some suffering comes from the fact that we live in a world that's kind of a mess. The Bible says that when everything went sideways in the decisions of Adam and Eve, that didn't just affect us internally, it changed the world we live in. It brought death and thorns and thistles, the curse, to the degree that Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that all, the whole earth groans in anticipation for the restoration of the sons of God because its redemption comes with it. Okay? We live in a world that has gone wrong, and that means pain and suffering. There's the suffering that Jesus talked about. He promised that all those who followed him would experience tribulation, persecution, difficulties in life. 
The question that's appropriate to ask as we look at this text this morning, is Paul talking about generic, every category across the board suffering? Or is this principle here only apply to one area? Now, specifically, I think it's worth just noticing the phrasing that he uses when he says in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. In fact, notice how he continues, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Both of those words are synonymous, but when they're used together, any and all affliction, right, it seems to cover all the bases. At the same time, it's worth recognizing that Paul has particular personal suffering in mind. That it's not categorical for him in the same way that it's not for you. You have personalized suffering. So what is Paul talking about this morning? Two things. Okay. First, we get a window into in verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Do you see that? The suffering he's talking about has a location. It happened in time. It happened in place. Look at how he describes it. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, indeed we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And so he looks at whatever it was that was happening in Asia. Most likely, this is what we read about in the book of Acts that takes place in the city of Ephesus, where Ephesus goes into full-fledged riot mode because of Paul's evangelistic outreach. Okay? His life is once again on the line, and he's enduring. He says later in this book, I have fought with the beasts of Ephesus. Now, if you know early church history, you know that there was a practice when Christians were at the height of persecution to feed them to the wild animals. As he writes these words, it's prior to that reality, but not prior to the reality of the arena. Okay? And so he's pulling the metaphor, not realizing maybe that that's going to be actual non-metaphorical destiny for many Christians. But whatever he went through, he says, I saw it as a death sentence. This is it. This is the end of my life. Clearly, clearly this is the suffering that Jesus was talking about. In fact, in this passage, if you were paying attention, he refers to sharing abundantly in Christ's suffering. He says, what I'm going through, I'm going through because I'm attached to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, if they hated the master, will they not also hate the servant? There's a relationship, there's a correlation. And so he's experiencing that reality and the truth is, you may or may not experience that into your life, but you all know the door is open to step into those difficulties, right? That a lot of times we don't suffer with Jesus because we don't publicly align ourselves with Jesus. And that's true. But that's not the only thing that's going on in Paul's life that's covering, um, causing pain. In fact, there's something so difficult that even Paul the Apostle is having a hard time doing ministry. Okay, Paul, who once was stoned to death outside a city and brushed himself off and went back into the city to keep preaching. This Paul, he tells us in this letter, he gets to a place where he comes into a new town and he goes, I just don't have it in me to do it today. Why? Because he's had a tremendous falling out with the church in Corinth. You see, we find out as we study this letter together that Paul came to Corinth and there was an uprising against him that there was criticism of his ministry, there was rejection of his apostleship, and it wasn't just outsiders, it had infected the church that existed because Paul planted it. It affected the people that, G that Paul personally led to Jesus. 
And it's so painful that he just slips out the door in the middle of the night. And then he writes a letter to try and make reparations, to set things right, to deal with the issues. This is not that letter. But he tells us as he sent that letter, as he's feeling the pain of how he's been treated by his children, the church in Corinth. And he's waiting to hear if there's been repentance, if they want to seek restoration, if they're willing to restore the relationship, that he can't even face the world around him. And I think that's incredibly striking, don't you? Because Paul here is offering comfort through his suffering to the people who caused it. Do you see that? When Paul says here at the end that uh, verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in your comfort or in our comfort. We have to recognize here that that suffering has caused Paul to suffer and he's found comfort in it and now he's offering them comfort in their suffering. We won't dig deep into that because it comes up later in the letter um, and so you can see it in chapter 7 if you're, if you're interested in hearing more about that. But I think that's an important point to make. Because there's a tendency to be much more resentful of the pain that's caused by other Christians. And in one sense, rightly so. Right? A stranger says something mean to you and you can brush it off. A family member says something, it hurts more because it shouldn't be that way. And that's totally accurate and appropriate. In fact, some of us feel like the church just makes our suffering worse. Maybe it's not intentional, maybe it's just from their ignorance, but the way they seek to help just proves that they have nothing to offer. Do you think Paul understands that as he says these words this morning? Do you think he has experience there? Let me just remind you that the consolation offered in Jesus Christ is offered to those who crucified him. So that suffering's not a bridge too far. That's what's going on with Paul when he speaks of the fact that he's found comfort in the God of all comfort this morning. But I think because he says the God of all comfort, I think because he says in all our affliction and in any affliction, I think we can expand the scenario. So I'll give you a few other places categorically different places of suffering in the characters of scripture where they also clearly found consolation. Consider with me David. David, whose suffering is due directly to his own sin. You see, David has graciously and out of the blue been made king of Israel. God goes looking for him while he's just a shepherd in a field who his brothers, all seven of them older than him, don't think very highly of him and chosen him and said, you're the king of Israel. And as he's sitting on that throne, as life goes on, as one time when he chooses not to go to war and fight the battles, because in those days, the kings were on the front line, but he stays home. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof at night, and he goes, I want her. And he takes her, and he sleeps with her, and it's worse than it sounds. How can it be worse than it sounds? Because she's the wife of one of his soldiers currently fighting on the front lines she gets pregnant. And now he goes, oh, okay, I'm going to be found out. I'm going to be caught. I need to do something about this. This is before the world of paternity tests. So his idea is, I'm going to bring her husband back from the front lines so that he'll sleep with his wife. And so it will just be assumed the child is his. It doesn't work out. 
The guy is too upright. And he says, how could I possibly sleep in the bed of my wife when the rest of the armies are out on the front lines? So David says, well, tonight I'll get him drunk. And he passes out in front of the king's palace instead of going home. So he has him killed to cover up his tracks. And then he marries this woman, Bathsheba, so that the pregnancy will be hard to track. And this is a post-marriage you know, pregnancy and not a pre-one. And life goes on. And a, man came, uh, a man named Nathan, who's a prophet of God, comes to David and divinely ordained confronts him in this sin. And to his credit, David looks his sin right in the eye, recognizes it for what it is, doesn't explain it away anymore, and repents. And we can read about that repentance in Psalm 51. But that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning because it gives us David's internal reality of what it was like to live with the guilt and reality of that sin. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. Honestly, this psalm is so good and so helpful. I wish we had time to read the whole thing. What I want to draw your attention to is verse 8. In fact, let's do 7 for context. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see that metaphor right in the middle? He says what he's experiencing in the consequence of his own sin, is like God has broken his bones. And so he cries out for a restoration of joy and gladness. It's suffering. It's self-induced, but it's suffering. But if you read the psalm a little bit further, what do you find? Comfort for that suffering. Consider Hannah. Hannah is a woman married to a man who has another wife with a lot of babies. Hannah is infertile. And Hannah is praying to the Lord in the suffering of this infertility, which is different than our modern world that can sometimes see kids um, not merely as optional in marriage, but even a burden in marriage. In those days, infertility is evidence of a curse from God. It leads to social rejection. She's being mocked by this other wife. She's afraid that the love of her husband is becoming questioned. The whole thing is an issue. But what is that? That's the suffering of a broken world, right? A good deal of our life is just environmental in nature, and that doesn't make it any less painful. The fact that it's not personal and just environmental doesn't make the pain go away, but she's comforted. God meets her in that. She, he responds to that. Consider Job. What about suffering that makes absolutely no sense at all? Suffering that's uncategorical, Suffering that's so extreme. Job is a man who's lost everything. His family, his fortune, his health. All he has left is a bitter wife 
and awful friends. Now, you can read the book and you get a window into what's going on, but it doesn't really make the suffering very much easier, does it? Right? He's involved in this divine cosmic battle between God and the devil to prove that God is worthy of worship. As demonstrated in Job, who's lost everything and still falls on his face and says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Job struggles with his suffering. Have you read the book? He may be righteous up to the point of his suffering, but it's tottering. He's struggling. He's questioning the justice of God. But when he encounters the living God at the end of the book, he is consoled. He is comforted. He is restored. So I'm comfortable this morning saying that the things we're talking about apply to your suffering this morning to the suffering of your friends and your family, to the hard questions just as much as the easy ones, to the self-induced just as much as those caused by others, even other Christians. For the suffering this morning, let's read verses 4 through 7 through again, and then I want to make some observations. So blessed be, uh, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Okay, so if you're suffering this morning, here's what you need to hear. First, you need to seek to be comforted and not just comfortable. In fact, if you're not suffering this morning, I want you to recognize that oftentimes, she's mine. It's different when she's mine. I want you to recognize that oftentimes we don't suffer because we've feathered our nest, because we've made it impossible to experience the suffering around us, because we've built a fortress against the pain of those around us, because we figured out ways to avoid it not look it in the eye or cover it up. But there's no comfort to those who aren't suffering. But more importantly, when I mean when I say seek to be comforted and not just comfortable, is either you're going to find comfort from God or you're going to make comfort in something else. We are a self-medicating race. It's who we are as human beings. Nothing makes us flee for relief like pain. And we have a laundry list of ways that we go about doing that. And the truth is, you cannot be comforted by God if you're busy comforting yourself. I know this personally. I know this personally, okay? Because I believe that the Bible is full of resources for me when I'm in pain. You know what I do instead? I order Thai food, and I put on Pink Floyd, and I lay in the dark. And I'll tell you, to this day, I have never finished that and felt truly better. Right? The Thai food is tasty while it's there. Pink Floyd emotionally is, is, you know, moving to me. 
and then it ends, and I'm not necessarily any better. It provides temporary relief, but not consolation, which is what this passage is talking about. For some of us, we may be seeking our comfort in another person. Now, I'm going to point out in just a second that other people are clearly a part of this paradigm. But when we make when we make another person our refuge, the place that we flee to, the place where we find safety and security, I promise you, that will let you down. One of the reasons the Bible calls God here the God of all comfort is because nothing else will live up to the reality of what there is in God. But I mean something more than that when I say seek to be comforted, comforted and not comfortable. What's t- being talked about here is a personal and full encounter with who God is. In other words, we would be right to say that the comfort we're talking about is God himself. God is not merely the giver of comfort, but the comforter. The word that's used here for comfort means to come alongside. It's personal in nature. And oftentimes, we just treat God as a dispensary for comfort. That he just alleviates the pain or or takes away the problem or, or deals with these things. There's a psalm, Psalm 73, that also deals with suffering. And if you've read it, you may not notice that. Because David opens up and he says, When I looked at the lives of the wicked, I almost stumbled. Because they live with wealth. They live with comfort. They enjoy their lives. And even when they finally die, they die quietly in their beds, surrounded by family. And he says, that bugged me. That bothered me. That poked a hole in the way things should be. That seems unjust. So you may read that and go, what does that have to do with personal suffering? Is it just that he's, you know, angry about this injustice? No, because he's righteous and his life is hard, right? Because he knows suffering and death and difficulty. Yeah, David goes on to sit on a throne, but that's after 14 years of running from Saul, uh, seven years of running from Saul and seven years of rejection by his own people that God has appointed them over. Okay, there's a lot of difficulty in David's life. And so he looks at this and he goes, oh man, I just don't get it. And then he says, I almost stumbled, but then I went into the temple of the Lord and remembered their end. He gets perspective. He sees the whole thing. But this is what I wanted to draw your attention to. Near the end of the psalm, he asks this question, who do I have in heaven but you? Who do I have on earth but you? He's not going to settle for the gifts if he doesn't get the giver. God is not just a dispensary of all good things. He is the ultimate good person, the good thing that you need, the consolation himself. John Piper has a sermon on Psalm 73 where he asks just the most heart-wrenching question. If heaven was all you ever dreamed it to be and everyone you ever loved was there and God wasn't present, Would that be sufficient? Not for David. In another psalm, he puts it this way. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the tent of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the rich, uh, of the wicked. Right? Will you settle for riches? Will you settle for the ending of your pain? The consolation that's talking about here is not those things, and it's more than those things. So don't settle for being comfortable. Seek to be comforted. Second, 
you have to be known by others, right? Clearly, what does Paul say here? That he comforts us in our affliction so that we may comfort others. Will you reverse engineer that with me this morning? What does that mean? It means that a primary way God brings us comfort is through other Christians. And that goes against the grain of our natural uh, instincts when we suffer. There was an occasion a few years ago, uh, actually not more than a few now, where I was a junior high pastor, and I was at a retreat, and we had 17 kids on a stump, which I will say to this day is a pretty good accomplishment. I decided I'd try and join them to be number 18. And as I got up, everybody was falling down, and so I tried to jump clear, and I hyperextended my left foot on a root. Okay. Now, that injury was bad enough. I probably broke it. I don't know that for sure, but I feel it right now, a decade later. It's a constant pain in my life. But do you know what I did as soon as I hit the ground? I crawled into the woods. I don't really remember that part. I just remember coming to completely alone in the woods. Let me just promise you, there was no help to be found in the woods. And that's always what suffering does, doesn't it? It drives us away from people. It peels us away. We feel maybe that they can't understand, or maybe it's more instinctual than that, and we just disappear, you know, into the, into the cave of our own consolation. You know, we, uh, we go away to lick our own wounds, whatever it is. When it says here that God comforts through those who have suffered, it means two things. It means you have to. You have to make your suffering known. You can't hide it any more than you can hide from it have to bring it out and then you have to allow yourself to be comforted by others you have to allow them to speak into your life and once again suffering is so personal whether we own up to it or not we tend to think nobody has ever gone through what I'm going through now but the way that God often works is through his body and the way that he comforts is through as we see those who have suffered and have comfort to offer there's another one on the list, and it's not very fun, but we have to recognize it here. Look at what he says in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure. Don't you wish that one wasn't on the list? In our fast food culture, where we get what we need when we need it, or we go somewhere else. But I tell you what. The words, the verbiage that's used throughout the Bible for those like Hannah, those like Job, those like David who find consolation, says they wait on the Lord. And sometimes they wait a long time. Simeon is a man who meets Joseph and Mary just after baby Jesus is born in the temple. And it says that he, in his old age, was waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. Same word we're re reading here. He had been waiting his entire life, and Israel had been waiting for years and years and years under the thumb of Roman power. The Bible is a story of a God who takes his time. Why? Well, just, just as a side note this morning, will you just own up to the fact that endurance is a good thing that we value? Right? And so when you hit the gym, you're building up your tolerance to the crappy reality of pain. Right? And that's a good thing. God doesn't want you just to endure. He, makes, he wants to make you an endurer. Right? And so I can't necessarily lay a finger on your suffering and why you're still feeling it or why God feels so absent, but I can promise you 
what Paul says in another place when he says, do not grow weary in doing good and seeking the Lord is always good. For in due time, if you do not give up, it will bear fruit. And then the last one here is that you have to, you have to desire more than your own personal comfort. Right? What he's trying to instill in us this morning is the significance of the fact that God allows us to suffer and brings us comfort so that we can be more valuable in other people's lives. Just look at the people I mentioned. You know what David says in Psalm 51? He says, restore me so I can proclaim your name to the Gentiles. He says, if you do this, then I can speak of your goodness. He's thinking of others. Hannah says, if you give me a son, Lord, I will give him back to you and he will serve your people. Paul wants consolation and restoration in his life, not just for himself, but for the Corinthians as well. In fact, most of the suffering Paul endured was the sake for pe of people he had not yet met who were not yet Christians. I actually think there's a, a really clever science in this. I'm just going to assume this morning that our self-focus in suffering is destructive. If, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm not going to take the time to prove it. I'm mostly speaking from personal experience. What we need most is to get our eyes off ourselves. And so if you're suffering this morning, seek to be comforted and not just comfortable. Be known by others and seek comfort in those other people. Patiently endure and desire more than just comfort. Don't see that as the end, but as the means. God doesn't just want to make you comforted. He wants to make you a comforter. What about for those who have been comforted? What do we see in this passage? First off, praise God. How does the passage open? Paul speaks from personal experiences that comforted, and he says, blessed be the God and Father of all comfort. Right? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I know some of us in our life have fair weather friends, right? The ones who only hang out when things are good. I think sometimes a lot of us are foul weather Christians. We go to God, we get what we need, and then we just forget about it. We move on with our lives. God demonstrates his character when he comforts us. And so it's appropriate and accurate and totally right to praise him and to praise him publicly for it. Second, this one seems a little bit self-evident, but be a comfort to other people. Right? If you've been there, if you've tried that, if you've experienced that, and you say, yeah, but I've never suffered from cancer, remember what Paul says back in verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Okay? It's totally right to recognize that some people are in worse pain than you've ever been in and not be flippant about that. But suffering and God's comfort in it qualifies you to comfort others in whatever their suffering is. But be a comfort means that you're going to have to enter into other people's suffering, right? If you retreat back into your tower and you surround yourself with those who are not suffering and you step away from people's pain, then you can't fulfill what this is talking about. It is impossible to comfort those who suffer without enduring at least slightly their suffering as well. And then secondly, share your comfort. Right? Obviously, 
what it says here is you have a value in people's lives when they suffer because you can explain to them, you can point to what God's done in your own life, the comfort that you found in Jesus Christ, the lessons that you've learned that he is faithful and good. In fact, Paul brings out one of the most important ones here. This is what he says in verse 7. He says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What does he say we can provide as those who have been comforted there? Hope. Hope. And hope is something that the sufferer always needs and never finds in and of themselves. But one of the ways we comfort others is we can say, hey, God is faithful. He's proven himself faithful in my life. We can provide hope. I want to finish with a story from the Old Testament this morning. There's an occasion of tremendous suffering in one of the cities of Israel. If I remember right, it's Samaria. Things have gotten so bad because an army has surrounded the city and cut off all of their food supplies. And so in the city, people are dying of starvation. It gives us an economic marker, and it basically says a day's wages is enough to buy a skull or a uh, head of a donkey. That's good eating right there, right? But that's the inflation caused by all of this suffering. And in the midst of this, there's four lepers sitting outside the gate who, on top of their circumstances, are lepers, right? Suffering is what they've done, what they do. They're estranged from everyone. They have it on every facet and every level. And they're having one of those conversations you never want to have, where they basically say, look, we're dying. Even if they let us come into the city, there's no life there. If we stay here, we're going to die. Maybe we should surrender to the enemy army, and they'll take care of us and have mercy on us. Really? Communicable disease lepers are going to be of value or of mercy during, you know, this, this blockade of starvation. There's going to be mercy. They're out of options. They take the worst option because it's the only option, right? But this is what happens. As they're walking to the camp, God miraculously makes the armies hear the sound of thousands and thousands of chariots. And the way they interpret the sound, they go, I don't know how they got word out, but clearly the Egyptians are coming to provide aid to Israel. This is not a war we can win. Let's get out of here. And so by the time the lepers walk into camp, it's empty of people. The tents are still set up. They can see sandals that have been left behind because of the rush of people getting out of there. And as they walk into tents, they find tables set for dinner with no one to eat them. And they're saved. And they eat and they drink and they take some of the clothing and some of the wealth, and they bury it in a private place to come back for it later, and they're going from tent to tent. And as they're sitting around the table, one of them goes, wait a minute, this isn't right. Just a mile from here, there's an entire city of starving people that don't know that they've already been delivered, don't know that the victory is already there, and they say, we will be held responsible if we don't go proclaim the good news. Now, We like to be the bearer of good news, but even as they show up, the city's not sure they're going to trust four lepers, you know. Maybe the way they found mercy with the enemy camp is that they've been employed to lay out this plot to put the city in danger, but they go, and here's the thing. We are called to enter into people's suffering because we know the God of all comfort. We have a sense and a solution and a meaning 
and an opportunity to provide to other people. And therefore, that comes with a responsibility. In the same way that if one of you stumbled across a cure to cancer and kept it to yourself, we'd all boo. And this comfort is more than just the things where God has met you in the midst of your basic levels of pain. This same author writing to us this morning, Paul, this is what he says to the Thessalonians. He says that in Christ we have found everlasting comfort. He says one way to view what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is that he's given us an eternal consolation. And don't hear that word wrong this morning. We think consolation, and that sounds like a prize for a runner-up. Like, I'm sorry you suffered. Here's something to make up for it. That's not the idea here. The idea is, is that you find meaning in the midst of your suffering. You find uh, comfort, consolation. You find presence when you felt you were alone. You feel loved when you felt abandoned. That's what it's talking about here. And it says uh, in Thess- to the Thessalonians, Paul says, this is one of the ways we view the gospel. You personally and intimately know the Father of mercies. You personally and intimately have encountered suffering and have been comforted, and you can offer that comfort to a world of pain. Maybe that's why Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, for many of us, our paradigm on suffering is avoid it. When it happens, get out of it as quickly as we can and then go back to avoiding it. But Paul presents a different paradigm this morning that says that we should, uh, we should welcome it as being, yes, painful and difficult, but not merely pain and difficult. That we should um, seek to endure it and allow it to to expose us to the depths of the comfort available in you. And then that we should take that comfort back into suffering, put ourselves back into the line of fire, enter into the front line of other people's difficulties freely and willingly because now we have a solution, a message of hope and encouragement and consolation. And Paul lived that out so clearly and so fully I pray that you would shape us into a people that do as well. I ask, Lord, that we would recognize opportunities when people are clearly in pain to step in, to be the hands of Christ embracing them in that pain, to be the voice of God speaking into that pain, to be the presence of God available not distancing themselves, ourselves from that suffering, but as God did, entering into it. God, we can only do this by the power of your spirit. And it's a beautiful thing, Lord, that the same word used here for comforter is the primary term given for your Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside us, the comforter that Jesus promised. And so we pray for more of that this morning in your name. Amen.